The next question is appropriate because the bulk of our questions today are about out-of-body experiences. So, Justin, your question about the Monroe Institute fits right in with this. Um, Tom has recently been asked to present some workshops at the Monroe Institute, um, his My Big Toe at the Monroe Institute, which of course is all about um, research for inhuman consciousness and uh, out-of-body experiences that began with Bob Monroe. Um, the question is, could you tell us a little bit more about what the program would be like, and would you be using the check units as uh, for experiment, experiential exercises? Yes, um, glad you brought that up, Donna. I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have paid you to do a better lead-in on what we're going to do. But uh, what's going on is is that um, uh, Nancy Lee, the director uh, of uh, GMI at the present time. Uh, got in touch with me and asked me to if I would be interested in doing some sort of an event at the Monroe Institute. And we talked about it a little bit, and what we came up with together is that this would be an experiential kind of a kind of a thing. It's not a lecture sort of thing, and it's not you know talking about it and doing the theory. It's getting in the booth, putting on the headphones, and having the experience. And what we would do, if you've watched my if you've watched my workshops, you know that like on Calgary, just for an example, at the end on Sunday, the last day, we talk about the larger reality, exploring it, how to do that, and I, I give some some examples and, and some uh, instruction on the uh, healing with your mind, uh, remote viewing, that sort of thing, and we do some exercises that let people practice those talents. And the reason I do that so that people will have some tools to, what I always tell them, find out for yourself. You know, if you have to find out for yourself, then here's some tools that will help you find out for yourself as far as experiencing the larger reality frame uh, personally. So what this is going to be is, is the Monroe Institute uh, is out in the, out in the bush in uh, rural Virginia. So everybody stays there, lives there on site, in, at the Monroe Institute in what's called a, a check unit, a booth where you lie down where there's headsets, they use binaural beats and, and uh, the Hemisync is, is their uh, trade name for their sound. It helps put you in a state and they've got some uh, words that will help uh, you know, move you along into those states. So there's some aids there for getting you into a productive altered state of consciousness, a productive meditation state, and then uh, leading you to uh, through your own experience. So they don't make up an experience for you, obviously. That would be leading the witness too far. But they do take you right to the point where it's now, you know, and it's your experience. But they get you to the point where that experience is likely to happen, more likely to happen than it would be maybe on your own. So we're going to go there. And um, unfortunately, there won't be, a, you know, there's only as many people can attend as there are beds and headsets, right? So it's a low number. It's like 20-some, 20 26 maybe, 28, I don't know. It's, it's middle to high 20s is all the beds and headphones they've got. So once we have whatever the number is, let's say 26 people or 28 people, that's it. It's full. Can't do anymore. And we're going to spend a week. It's going to be a, a whole week long. I think that that's 
six or seven days, I'm not sure, but it's going to be a, a long session and everybody's going to go experience the larger reality and then we're going to talk about it. And as people have issues, well, you know, every time I get right up to the point where it's like my experience, I lose consciousness. I blank out, you know, what, what's going on there? And I'll be able to explain to them, you know, three or four different reasons why that might be like that and what you can do about it. And then they'll go back and they'll try it again. So there's no guarantees that anybody will have any particular experience, but it probably raises the probability that you will because the Monroe Institute will float you up to the, to the place where it's more probable and I will be giving you uh, uh, some, I'll be the coach on the sidelines, right? Uh, helping you run the plays and uh, deciding whether to pass or run, you know, and, and what you might try next to, to uh, succeed or to go where it is that you want to go. So it's that sort of thing. And it's going to be intensive in that it's not just going to be one evening. It's going to be day after day after day. And we're going to focus on different things. We'll focus on kind of the remote viewing, the healing, and other, you know, things, the, the uh, interaction with uh, non-physical beings. We're going to focus on different kinds of things, and I'll help you interpret the information, explain what you've got and what you don't have. Some people can run away with their imagination when they have these things, and uh, that's not really too helpful, and some people will deny it all, and that's not really too helpful. And so I'm kind of going to be there to help you interpret and, uh, and get something out of it that will be useful for you. So that's what it is. It's a, it's a week-long experiential thing that uh, I'm doing at TMI on their facilities. The bad news is that we can't have, you know, 100 people attend because we own a facility will only support 20-some. And when it fills up, it's filled up. So if any of you want to participate, then you need to be getting in touch with the Monroe Institute and getting your name on the list uh, pronto because my guess is it won't be hard to, to fill or it won't take long to fill those those limited spaces. So uh, if you're interested in that, you need to be getting in touch with Monroe Institute. Anyhow, it's not going to happen until August of 2015, and then again, I think in uh, late November, the same year. So we're going to do two of them in 2015. And I think the first one's in August, and the second one is late November, maybe early December, I don't know, it's toward the end of the year. So that's what that's all about. And I'm glad you asked because I wanted to get uh, the word out basically to people that are in my data stream because I'm sure that Nancy Lee and TMI is getting the word out to the people that are in their data stream. And I'd, I'd like that uh, as many people as possible at least get a fair shot at getting their name on the, on the list. So I'd like everybody to know as soon as possible that it's available. Thanks, Donna. That was a nice. All right, Tom. That's good. Um, that's going to be very exciting. I understand that people have already started signing up for it. Um, some of our next questions concern out-of-body experiences, which is keeps the ball rolling here. It's right in the same theme. Uh, this one comes from Pally. Um, Pally asks, is it, is it beneficial to program what's happening during the night by some affirmations or intent um, to either find solutions for problems we receive, uh, to have lucid dreams, or to have an out-of-body experience? 
Or is it maybe better just to analyze the feelings and choices in our dreams to draw from that knowledge about ourselves? The question basically uh, comes down to, should we forcibly program this intent to find these solutions um, or, or questions, or should we just accept from whatever presents itself? Well, I guess that depends on how, um, uh, you know, passive or proactive an approach that you'd like to take. Uh, you could do either one. The programming yourself is one where you set your intent that you will have, say, an out-of-body experience. So before you go to, you know, you know, before you even make an attempt, you try to program your um, yourself to be positive toward that happening. And really what you're doing is setting up a positive frame of mind. You're setting up a mind frame that says, I would like to do this. Here's why I would like to do this. Here's what I think I can get out of it. Um, you know, I think this would be important for my growth or whatever. You know, you have all this set up in your mind and that uh, I really, you know, when, when I get there, if it's scary or something, that's all right. I'm just going to accept that and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through with this and you're, it's a psych up, if you will. You're getting your yourself uh, geared up to do this thing and not to be afraid, not to run away when the monster says boo and to, uh, you know, do it. So that can be helpful because it's, it's kind of, it is programming your response in a way. You can do that and that will probably speed the process up some, but it may also speed up the process of, of, um, being frightened away because we can psych ourselves up and you know, a lot of humma humma, you know, I won't run away and I'm going to be brave and I'm going to do all this and it's going to be wonderful. And, and then when you get right to it, you scream and run away, go back to your body and, you know, and you weren't ready. So I'd say that if you, if, if you program it and you push yourself before you're really ready, it's probably not helpful and not a good thing to do. If you, because now you've just created a, a, an event that frightened you, and now you'll be more likely to be frightened again because you were frightened that time, you see? So if you go when you're ready, which is more of your acceptance, you know, it'll happen when it happens, but still have the intent of why you'd like it to happen. In other words, let the larger conscious system know that you think you're ready for this, that you think this is something that you need to help give you the personal experience that this reality is bigger than just your imagination. And that's something that you kind of have been worrying over and you'd like to know that it's not just your imagination. So this experience would be very useful to you. And if you let the system know that, and if the system agrees with you that you're ready and this would be helpful, there's a very high probability that you will have the experience. If you psych yourself into something that you're not ready for, there's a high probability that it won't be a good experience. You'll probably have some sort of experience, but it may or may not be a good one. So that's, you know, that's kind of on the, on the, the side of uh, letting it happen naturally. Now on the other side, if you are ready and, you know, and you're not just kidding yourself, it's not just that you want to, but that you're really ready for it, then if you, kind of program it and work at it, it'll happen sooner, probably, because now you're putting more energy out there that this is something you want to do. You, uh, you are uh, helping yourself get prepared for it. And again, you need to think not only, I want the experience, 
if it's just I want the experience, that's like I, I want another ride on the roller coaster, you know, or I want to, you know, go to the theme park because it's fun, then you're not going to get much help and it's not going to really do much uh, for you. Matter of fact, you may just get a scary experience which will chase you away until you grow up a little and, you know, it's not just about having a wild experience. But if you have some good reasons why, you have a good intent. In other words, the intent is that if you have this experience, it will end up lowering your entropy. It'll be a good experience. Help you put the pieces together. And if that's what you focus on, is having something that's useful and helpful and uh, something that will help you grow, then I'd say, yes, program it. Work on it if you're ready. If you're not ready, it's probably not a good idea. And if you don't know whether you're ready or not, well, just, you know, like if, you're not, if you don't know whether you can swim or not, you know, you don't just leap into the deep end of the pool. You know, you go in where the steps are and you slowly uh, get to where it's deeper and see if you can swim a little bit while you can still stand up. You know, you go in gradually, which is a little bit of intent and maybe a little bit of programming, but you don't push it too hard. You just let the system know you're ready and see what happens. And, you, you know, it's not all or one. You don't have to push you know, as hard as you can push or do nothing at all, there's in-between ground where you can dip your toe in a little bit first if you, if you like. So it, it depends on you and how ready you are. Um, you know, going to the uh, Monroe Institute that we just talked about, putting on the headphones, having you uh, be kind of placed in a very productive meditation state, and, uh, and then uh, that will raise the probability. You know, talking about a pushed process, that's a pushed process. That puts you right there and says, all right, now, you know, experience. And at that point, you know, you'll either deny everything and shut down and go blank, or you will, you know, open up to experience, or your imagination will go on the hyperdrive, and then you'll confuse yourself. Did I imagine that or did I not? And all these things will happen, and you won't know what to make of it, and then you'll come back later because these these experiential things will only take about an hour or so they don't take you know it's not like you're you have the headphones on for five hours you know you have the headphones on for about an hour and then we come out we talk about it and uh, try to help figure out what actually happened there you know was it your imagination was it not and what might you do to determine whether it was or not you know the next time and and so on so it's it's an energy process don't expect don't expect the out-of-body state to come very quickly and suddenly and be stable. It's one of those things that will usually happen kind of by chance, and then maybe uh, if it's a good experience, it will happen more often, and eventually you may gain control over it to where it can happen at will. But that usually takes place over years, not over you know, days or, or weeks for most people. So it's not a fast thing. It's a thing that Take your time with it. It's no rush to get there. Unless, of course, you're in a big rush and then you can't help yourself and you're going to do whatever you do anyway and it'll all happen however it happens and then you'll just have to deal with it and maybe that'll work out good and maybe not, which is the way most people do it. <laughs> I see Justin laughing. That's probably the way he did it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. Yeah, um, maybe just a follow-up question, Tom. Uh, Let's say I have the impression that I may get these experiences of something like that um, quite easily. I don't know how whether I should try to get them. Basically, I have choice of not having them or having them. 
and I don't know what I should. That's 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 the free will choice I I struggle with. I don't know how much I should force it or how much I should just let it go and go with the flow. Well, it depends on you and the kind of person that you are. And uh, you know, if you were, uh, you know, it's like you grow up in a small town in Iowa and. Uh, You've you've maybe gone as far as the county fair, you know, in the next county, and you've never actually left, you know, that area. And you kind of got this idea that you could, you got plenty of money, you could buy a ticket to Paris, but you're not sure if you should because you've never really been that far. You've really never, you know, been more than 50 miles away from where you were born. And should you or should you not, you know, take that ticket to Paris? Well. Maybe Paris, maybe England would be a better choice because they'd speak the same language you do. Maybe you ought to go to England first, then try Paris before you actually go to Hong Kong or, you know, China or Beijing or something. That may be a little harder for you to do. So you, I'd say if you're feeling like you really would like to, it's an adventure you'd like to have, then definitely go explore. It's not likely to have a negative side. If you're frightened and you're not sure that you really want to do that, you kind of say, I'm all right the way I am. I really don't need that, you know, because it's just a little scary. Then I'd say you're probably not ready yet. Just leave it alone. It'll happen to you when you're ready. But if you're kind of got an explorer's idea, if, if there's a mountain and you haven't climbed it yet, you have a need to climb it. You know, if you're one of those kinds of people who wants to go, you know, go boldly where None have gone before. Wasn't that the Star? Uh, I mean, the uh, yeah, the Star Trek uh, uh, thing. Yeah, if that's your mindset that you want to go boldly, you know, where no one's gone before, just because it's there, you want if you know if it's a mountain, you need to climb it. Then I'd say definitely go. But if you don't really have that need to go where no one's gone before, and you're doing just fine the way you are, and you don't feel like it's all that necessary, then let it alone. It's nothing like, it's not like, well, if you don't climb the mountain, then, you know, you're not ever going to, you know, do anything or you'll never get there. That's not true. You don't have to do any of this ever. It's not like it's required or necessary. Um, many people never experience anything paranormal and they can grow up and be, you know, just as well as if they did. It's not like there's a big detriment for not doing these things. There isn't. It's just whether or not that's your personality and you want to go do that. How important is it? Many people, particularly if they're right brain and kind of in touch with the, with the, uh, you know, with the large reality intuitively, um, have no need. They're already in touch with the larger reality. You know, they don't need to go see pictures or, uh, you know, do anything like that. It's just, it's just there. It's a normal part of their life. So in that case, there's just no incentive other than what you're already doing. Usually it's the left brain person who says, am I imagining all of this? Is this real? Or is this just going on in somebody's imagination? You know, is Tom Campbell just making all this up? You know, is it a hallucination or, or what? Is it real? And they can't stand the fact that they don't know. The uncertainty drives them nuts. So they want to go find out for themselves. And that's the person that tends to be driven to go have the experience. And half the time, that's a good idea. They go find out for themselves, and, and that's good. And the other half the time, they have a scary experience and end up worse off than if they hadn't done anything at all. So that's why I say it's a toss-up. depends on you. You don't want to be worse off than where you started. And whether or not you need to do this or not has more to do with you than, 
than it. And whether you ever do it or not is not isn't really that that uh, important as far as your progress and your growth and and you know the quality of your consciousness doesn't need to go there. There are other other ways. That's that's uh, mostly for us left brainers who you know need to climb the mountain. I'm one of those, you know, that, you know, if there's a mountain, I need to climb it. If I haven't seen it, somebody can tell me all about it, but until I look at it, I'm not satisfied. And that's not everybody. And it doesn't have to be everybody. It's just a personality type. You can do just as well by never going there. You know, there isn't anything I learned in the out-of-body that, that made me a better person. I'm a better person from my experience and what I have, my choices that I've made. But I've got plenty of choices right here in this physical reality that will help me be a better person. I don't have to go search for other choices, you know, other places and other experiences. Now, if you have those, then that's fine. It's just another part of your experience set. You have physical reality and you have your dream reality. So you have kind of a non-physical reality that you explore, you know, in your dream reality that can fill in for things that can't happen here. You've already got that aspect. You don't really need much more than that to, to uh, evolve the quality of your consciousness. But if you just want to go anyway, because that's just the way you are, then programming, it'll get you there quicker. But don't program if you have fear, if you're not quite sure that you really want to have that experience. Or if you do, don't let the fear scare you away for long. Suck up your courage and go back in there and, you know, and do it again, kind of thing. So if I understood well, uh, in my case, I really don't perceive any fear. So that's good, I guess. And uh, you answered my question uh, along the lines of uh, not missing anything if I focus on forcing these kind of special experiences. Because whatever happens in a dream, I will anyway learn some in some other way in non-physical. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank you very much. It can be done. It's available, but it isn't a necessary step, you know, to get where you need to go. It's an optional. It's an optional step. Tom, since you mentioned, uh, are these experiences real? I'll start with Adam's question. That refers to. Um, I'm sure. We are all familiar with the moment you discovered for yourself that NPMR experiences you were having were real. The journey with Dennis that you speak about in your book. When was the moment that you truly realized love was the answer to how to grow up? Well, you know, that, that happened to me not, not so dramatically. You know, and actually the, the one with, where Dennis and I uh, kind of went out together, that was that was more dramatic, even though we had plenty of experiences that would have told us up to that point that what we were experiencing was real. That was I was just at the point I guess where the where I just needed a little push, you know, to get to the point where I emotionally accepted that, and then the experience with Dennis was just the push I needed that uh, that that happened. As far as figuring out that love is the answer, you kind of get that all along. Because you begin to see, when you, when you begin to, to, to live in a bigger picture, that means you're more aware of 
more. You know, you, you see things from a different light. It's not just from the little picture of, you know, I'm at the center of the universe and here's everybody else that I interact with and so on. But it's, it's you a part of this, this bigger thing. And uh, when you do that, you begin to realize that these other players are every bit as important as you are, and you're all kind of in this thing together. And the more clarity this thing has to it, what is this thing that we're all in it together? You kind of get this sense of, of uh, that cooperation and kindness and compassion is, you know, is the way to go in this thing we're all in together. And we're all not here to, to compete and see which one of us is the last one standing. You know, that's not the name of the game we're in. And you get that just from living your life and, and seeing how things work. So all along, as I was working this, you know, and I started it, okay, I'm just a physicist who meditated once or twice, thought there was a, a bigger reality than, uh, than the physical from the meditation, and had an opportunity to do some experimentation with Bob Monroe. Okay, that was kind of my starting position. But as time went on, I realized that when I did things for the right reasons and had the right motivations and the right intents, which was the opposite of being self-centered and it's all about me and how do I want to make it come out suit me, I found that things just worked better. That when it was self-focused and when it was me trying to manipulate the world, nothing seemed to work well. Everything, you know, all my manipulations to get it to come out the way I wanted it usually collapsed, you know, in a big heap that was very unsatisfactory. And, you know, even me, you know, after getting hit over the head with the same two before, you know, the same way, you know, a dozen times, I began to feel that maybe I should change the way I was looking at things. And then you realize that if you go into things for the right reasons, if it's about people and it's about others and you're trying to help, that you don't need to rearrange things to come out the way you want. They just come out the way you want automatically because what you want now is different. What you want is something that is uh, that just happens without any effort. And that begins to let you know that love is the answer. Now, that is all intuitive and kind of the right brain portion. That's the way the right brain works. You kind of take your experience, and out of your experience, you, you build some kind of intuitive sense of the way the world works. So I think we get to the love is the answer kind of in a right-brained intuitive sense, and then we kind of deny it in our left brain that wants to control everything, wants everything to be reduced to logical process. And I think I got to, I got that love is the answer that had been stirring around in the right brain for some years over to the left brain, while I was writing the My Big Toe book. And as I was writing this book, I was still figuring out some of what was going on and how and you know and how to describe it. How can I describe this to people in a way that makes sense? What's a good overall way of putting this this together? And I came upon the idea that that my my research in the in the out of body state let me know that it was really about information. I kind of got that idea first on the intellectual side. Information's the key here. And that was kind of a, an aha all by itself, that what we're talking about in all of, all of these things is data, information being passed around. And then as I thought about that, my next aha moment came that it, uh, if it's an information system, 
then we're talking about, uh, you know, a computer, a simulated reality. And once that idea came, that was kind of an aha that, oh, okay, this is, this is simulation. And then next thing came was, well, it's digital because the only other option other than digital is analog and analog just doesn't compute in a, in a simulation like this. You, you know, it, that's too complicated and too much trouble to do this all in analog. You know, digital is much more flexible and this requires a lot of flexibility. So now I got to the point that it's a digital simulation and then the point was, well, why? You know, who, why? Where, did, where would a digital simulation come from and what would be its point? What's the purpose? You know, digital simulations just don't pop out of nothing and say, all right, here's a simulation, and they just start to run. You know, that doesn't happen. There has to be purpose behind it. And then I got the idea about evolution. All right, this is an evolving digital simulation. And then the question was, to what end? You know, something has to push evolution. Evolution has to work the criteria. It doesn't just work, you know, because it does. It works for criteria. In our physical evolution, the criteria is survival and procreation. Those are the those are the uh, things that evolution is you know has to work to. Well, for consciousness evolution, what's driving the the ship here? You know, what's the motive force? And then pondering that for you know I don't know a few hours, a few weeks, uh, it became clear to me that that if you have a information system, it works on entropy. More information, it means lower entropy. Less information is higher entropy. And if it's an evolving system, it's about lowering its entropy. And then I guess the biggest aha that I could that I could point to as far as getting this love is the answer in the left brain sense rather than the right brain sense is when I realized that a, an information system like this, which is a social system, it's not just a monolithic consciousness. It's all these little subsets of consciousness interacting with each other. It's a social system that in a social system, you lower entropy through caring, through, you know, the interaction has to be a positive, caring, um, compassionate about other kind of an interaction. Otherwise, your social system disintegrates. It devours itself. It consumes itself. If it's all, you know, if it's about the opposite, if it's all about me and, and, uh, and it's not about other and you don't really care, you don't cooperate, it's how much can I grab and can I hold on to it and so on, that is a, that is a social system that will swallow itself, you know, that will self-destruct. And that is not one that's going to evolve. This is going to evolve and continue to evolve. It has to be based on caring and cooperation and working together. That's what fuels the system. And then it made, when I got that idea, then all the, all the various pieces that I had out there, I probably had 50 different pieces all over the place. I was trying to put together the, the puzzle of how it all worked and how could I explain it, then everything fell together. It was that idea that love is the answer that was a cement and it pulled all the pieces together because then I could see how it all had to work. The system was about becoming love, and that's how it evolved. And it, it had to evolve in that direction, otherwise it would self-destruct. So logically, there's only one answer. It has to evolve in that direction, otherwise it de-evolves rather than evolves. It, would not, it wouldn't survive. Well, it has survived, because here we are. So it has to be evolving toward 
love. That's the only thing that isn't self-destructive. And then all the pieces fit together and uh, how to explain this thing, the metaphors to use and the way to approach it that made the most sense kind of congealed to, you know, what's now the my big toe, you know, uh, logical construct. So I think that's kind of the, the way in which I finally got there, which was through that, that kind of chain. But you get there first through the right brain. Just through living life, you realize that kindness and caring just produces a whole lot more joy and positive things, and, and everything else in your life works better if you approach it from that viewpoint. And as much as you try to manipulate and control and force and demand, everything goes to hell in a handbasket, and nothing ever seems to work right, and you live in constant frustration. So that goes on in the right brain part of you, the intuitive part of you. And then finally, I got the left brain connection with why that all made sense. You know, why did it logically have to be that way, even though I intuitively knew that that's the way it was. And at that point, I kind of had the backbone of the theory and how it all worked out. And uh, that was early in my writing uh, of My Big Toe, somewhere in the first probably 10 or 20 percent of writing the My Big Toe book. I, uh, all that came together, and uh, that's... You know, that's, that's kind of the process. I don't know. So there really wasn't a big one aha moment where I was just woke up one day or, you know, I was walking down the street and I got, ah, love is the answer. You know, it didn't quite come that way. It was a series of steps that, uh, that, uh, that got there. Tom, you just spoke about your discoveries while writing MBT. Uh, Adam also asks, did you ever discuss what you were doing with your family after beginning to research consciousness and during your writing? You know, um, kind of, yes and no. My immediate family, which would be my wife uh, and children, the time I was writing it, my children were probably, um, you know, they weren't toddlers at the time I was writing this, but they were, you know, preteen to young teens and weren't really too interested in the philosophy of reality, you know, at 12 and 13 and 14. Uh, they had other things on their mind at that time, so they were not too uh, involved and they really weren't all that interested in what dad was doing all, you know, all evening sitting at the computer. So, uh, you know, I, of course, would could would tell them, but uh, they really weren't too interested at that at that age. But now, uh, Pamela was involved in it, and I would discuss some ideas with her sometimes. But uh, pretty much, um, you know, she uh, of course wanted me to do whatever it is I needed to do. You know, I was on a mission, and I had things I was figuring out, and she was supportive of that, but didn't uh, uh, didn't get in the way or didn't try to you know. Uh, push or, or help or, or not help or anything. She kind of let me, uh, you know, work those things out on my own. As far as other people, uh, I probably didn't mention too much to family because I don't see my family that much. I live probably, um, you know, 700, 800 miles from the nearest family member or, you know, during all that time. So there wasn't a lot of daily interaction. And my family is... Uh, not a uh, a family that gets on the phone, you know, every you know every week or every couple of days. So I didn't see my family, but once or twice 
a year, maybe at most. Sometimes it might be three or four years between when I, you know visits would take place and and so on. So uh, and that was pre uh, Skype and pre um, you know a lot of that sort of thing. Email was just in its infancy. Computer you know computers weren't around too much either. We're talking about the 1990s, uh, 1980s, 1990s is where all this was coming uh, together in my mind. And that was a little early for uh, you know getting together and having a, a video call on Skype. So I didn't talk to my family much as it was coming together. But afterwards, I after I published it, within a few months after publishing, and I sent a lot of books out. I sent a lot of them out to people who were in the uh, uh, you know notable people in the field of consciousness and AI and other people like that. I thought would be interested because of their scientific and other achievements. Uh, they were well known for their thinking in the field. So I sent probably 50 of the My Big Toe book sets. At that time, they, we didn't have the all-in-one. It was just separate books. I sent the three book trilogy out to probably 50, 60 people. And among those was my sister. I have just one sibling, a sister, and my parents. And I sent them out the books and said, hey, here's this thing I've been working on, you know, because I had told them I was working on writing a book. But they didn't really know too much what it was about. And, uh, you know, when somebody says, oh, you write a book? And I said, yeah. And they say, well, what about? And I say, well, it's physics, philosophy, and metaphysics. And they go, oh, well, let's talk about something else. You know, it's not a, it's not a subject that most people really say, oh, yeah, that's my passion, you know. Tell me more, you know. Usually it's a kind of roll their eyes and change the subject. So, And that's typically what I got from my family as well. You know, it wasn't something that they were really into, and that was okay. But I did send them the book. And uh, I don't know that any of them ever read it. Um, nothing really came up as far as discussions or questions or anything. I think my sister must have read a little of it because she did mention uh, uh, something to me. But uh, I don't know if she got past you know the first you know section or not. But you know it's, it's everybody's not interested in how how does the world work you know and and the nature of reality, most people say, well, I just live here and everything works, so, you know, I really don't need to know. It's like somebody doesn't really care how their car works. They get in their car, you know, they start it, you know, they push the right pedals and knobs and they drive off, and they really don't need to know. If you walked up to them and say, hey, you want to know how an internal combustion engine works? They'd say, well, not really. You know, I don't need to know that. I just need to know that when I press on the gas and put it in gear, it goes, you know, and how to steer the thing. And, don't bother me with the details. And most people feel that way about life and about their consciousness and how the world works and, and the larger consciousness system. You know, it's just like the car. They don't really want an explanation of how you know, it all works. They're just doing fine, thank you, without all that. So um, I think most of my family fit in that category. So there was, never a, there was never any contention or any, you're doing what, you know? That's crazy, you know. They really uh, wouldn't think that about me. If I'm doing it, then it's something I wanted to do, and if it's something I want to do, then they're all in favor of me doing it. You know, they don't really need to know what it is. That's that's enough. So, in uh, that way, my family was supportive in the sense that I didn't get any any negative feedback from anybody. Uh, all the feedback was positive, but very general. Positive in that, well, that's neat. When are you going to get your book out? Great. You know, so it was that kind of general feedback. Uh, and then when they got the book, eh, not quite so interested because it really wasn't their cup of tea. So mostly the people in my family, they they um, 
you know, kind of knew what it was about, and maybe we had 10 or 15 minutes worth of discussion about it, but it wasn't something that uh, they were very interested in. Uh, now, people I live with, you know, I'll broaden your question a little bit. What about in the community and my neighbors and the people I live with? And when I was working at, you know, NASA and other places, well, I generally kept a low profile. You know, that was my night job. And my day job was doing physics, and I did my physics, and I didn't really try to combine the night job and the day job in any kind of noticeable way. Now, as far as inside my own head, well, I combined the day job and the night job all the time. The reason I was successful in coming up with large complex systems is because I could work on them, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, other people couldn't. I could see bigger pictures. I could uh, kind of intuit things that uh, would lead me to go off in a direction. And, and uh, as far as other people would notice, I was just lucky because I would just mine the right vein that had the information in it that I needed. Um, I generate a lot of that intuitively. So, sure, I used, I used uh, all of my brain and understanding on the job, but I didn't show any of that, so it never really came up. I kept a low profile. Um, until I got to my last uh, major job, I had some after that, my last major job at NASA, and by then I already was on uh, uh, I had already been on, uh, what was it, Coast to Coast. Coast to Coast is a radio program that uh, talks about strange things, and I was one of the strange things that they talked about one time, and I was on the program, and uh, so these the two young uh, engineers come up to me while I'm in NASA, and they say, are you the Tom Campbell? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Tom Campbell. You know, what Tom Campbell do you have in mind? And they said, the one that was on Coast to Coast. And it's like, uh-oh, you know, I'm, I'm out of the closet now, you know. My people at work, you know, know I've got this other, this other life. And that worked out just fine. So, uh, you know, they'd trap me in the hall and, uh, and ask me questions. And they were real interested and excited. And they were some of the people that were in my group that were working uh, with me. So that turned out to be very beneficial. Now, how far that spread or whatever, I have no idea, but I didn't really notice any of it. You know, uh, it never turned into anything other than the fact that there were a couple of people I worked with who were uh, very positive and very pleased to have me around so they could ask questions about things other than physics and what we were supposed to be talking about at NASA. So that, uh, I had that. Now, neighbors and so on and people I run into, no neighbors, not at all. I'm just a guy that lives in the house next door. You know, we don't talk about those things. It doesn't come up. In normal life, when you interact with people, you know, they, people don't come up to you and say, hi, you know, I'm Joe Smith. Tell me about your philosophy of life. You know, that just doesn't happen. So, you know, for the most part, no, that's a, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't show much in my, in my personal life. But now there are other friends. I have people that I interact with that, uh, for over, you know, 25 years or so, and they know... Uh, quite a bit. Most of them are somewhat interested, but interested enough to actually read the book, eh, you know, not quite so many. Uh, interested enough to want to talk about it sometimes, sure. So, yeah, kind of what you'd expect. So I don't make a I don't make a big wave in uh, in my acquaintances and and places where I've worked because uh, mostly people just aren't that interested. If they're interested, I talk about it. I don't go to, I don't try to hide it or keep it secret or whatever, but uh, I don't go proselytizing and say, hey, you want to know about the larger reality? 
I've got a book. You should buy it. You know, I, that's not my approach to people. So mostly, it's a it's a pretty subdued uh, interaction with family and friends and neighbors and that sort of thing. So no, I'm not famous amongst the people I hang out with. Matter of fact, many of them, most all the people who know me, uh, you know, kind of socially, uh, would be surprised to death to find out that there's 220 videos of me on YouTube. You know, they have no idea. Although occasionally, you know, I get, I get, and this is interesting you asked, but just in the last week, I've had two um, people come to my home to do work. One of them had to patch a hole in sheetrock, and um, the other one doing some other work, and both of them <clears throat> asked me, well, what do you do? You know, you know, what do you do for a living? And I told them, well, I'm retired, but, uh, you know, I have this book business. And they asked a little bit more about it. And they were actually interested. So when I said physics, philosophy, and metaphysics, they said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, you have some place where I can find more about it, which was kind of surprising. And uh, I said, sure, go to YouTube. You know, go Google my name, and, and it'll take you to YouTube. And, and uh, I figured that's the last I'd ever hear about it. And then I heard back from them in about a week. They said, oh, I spent the last five hours, you know, last weekend, you know, listening to your stuff on YouTube. That's, that's really neat. So sometimes that happens, but that's the, that's the exception. And uh, who knows how far that will go. I said, well, look, I got some extra books laying around and people send me because they're damaged, you know, when, when uh, the, the warehouse that ships my books and Baker and Taylor that ships my books they don't always pack them very well, and the books get damaged in transit. And then when they do, they end up at my house. So I've got a bunch of books that are just cosmetically, you know, flaws on them. Not not a whole lot that I that I have around. So if people ask, you know, I usually hand them one, or or if somebody wants an autograph book, say, now here's a secret, right? I shouldn't say, but if somebody wants an autograph book, I don't have the books here. The books get shipped from the printer to the warehouse where. The fulfillment service, you know, actually boxes them and ships them. I don't have room in my house to warehouse, you know, thousands of books, you know. So it goes to a warehouse, and that warehouse is in Ypsilanti, Michigan, you know, which is a long way from where I live. So I don't have books here, other than the ones that come to me as damaged. But often the damage is so superficial that it takes a, a minute or two of a very close inspection to discover it. And sometimes even then I can't discover it. You know, sometimes I wonder why, you know, it got sent back damaged when it looked perfectly good. So when somebody does ask for an autographed book, what I do is I, if I have these available, I'll dig up one of the ones that have come back to me and autograph it and send them out to it. And they don't know that they're getting a book that was actually sent to me as damaged, you see. But that's the only books I have. I can't, I, I never touched the rest of them. So. It's in good condition, though. I go through all the ones I have and pick out the ones that, that are that are uh, look like they're absolutely not damaged at all. And I don't think anybody's ever noticed. But now they'll all hear it on the on YouTube, and uh, they go look at their book and say, "Oh, I got a damaged book. I should have gotten a discount on that." But anyway, that's uh, you know, you ask questions about what goes on in my life, and you know, I talk more than I should. But I I tend to be a very open person, and people that do ask me questions, I don't mind. You know, I don't mind talking about it, and it's usually not asked, though. People are sometimes careful, you know, they don't want to ask personal questions. They don't know whether that's appropriate or not, but I really don't mind. It, uh, I don't mind saying the way things are. It's just, 
that makes life easy. You know, if you don't ever have any secrets, if you don't ever have anything that you are afraid for people to find out, then it makes your life very simple. You know, you just are and you just be and it works however it works and people deal with whatever it is. And that's kind of the way I am. So I, I find that's a much simpler way to live. Okay, Tom. Well, we'll go back to the subjects of out-of-body experiences. Um, Greg has a question. You mentioned in MBT that most people have spontaneous out-of-body experiences while asleep. You've also spoken about how dreams are a way to explore various scenarios. How many other types of activities or purposes to be served during sleep are you aware of? Does a single person generally go through several types of activities in one night? Also, how much does this process change as consciousness quality increases? Okay, the sleep serves multiple purposes. And those purposes do change as you evolve. Of course, you have the fundamental, you have a fundamental purpose. I don't know if it's the fundamental purpose, but you have one of the fundamental purposes of sleep is to give the body a rest. Because during activity, your body builds up uh, the, uh, which you can kind of think of as the, maybe the refuse or the, uh, the byproducts of metabolism. You know, so as muscles work and, and uh, other things happen, you, you build up these, the, uh, like, like a, in a factory that makes things. It has a smokestack, you know, and it has a trash pile. You know, there, there are byproducts of building things, and it's the same with your body. There's a, there's a, a, a figuratively, uh, there's a smokestack and a, and a garbage pile, and all that has to be gotten rid of. And some of that, of course, is in your, in your bodily eliminations and sweat and so on, but other than that, it takes time to process this stuff and get it, get it cleaned up in your body. And sleep is a time when you're not continually dumping more of that stuff into the system. You're lying perfectly still and quiet, and the body gets a chance to catch up on, on dealing with the uh, byproducts of, of what you do all day long. Okay, so that's one function of the sleep that gives the body a chance to, to, to clean up the mess you've made all day inside your body. Uh, the second thing is that's also very fundamental is that, you know, when, if you leave your computer on long enough, it'll eventually get so squirrely and dysfunctional that you'll have to do a reboot. Right? It, gets, it just eventually confuses itself. It gets up in a wad and it goes to places and it doesn't know what to do. It gets stuck. Things malfunction and you just have to reboot every so often or it won't work. At least my computer's like that. You know, you can leave it on for maybe even a month, but you get to a point where you just have to reboot the thing, otherwise it doesn't work. Well, people are the same way, and, and sleep is part of the reboot process. How many times have you been wound up tight about something? Have you been, uh, you know, full of anxiety and this and that, and, you know, you don't see any way out and you're trapped and this all stuff happens to you and what you do is you go to bed and in the morning you wake up and it's a different thing it's not you're no longer as dysfunctional as you were all that anxiety and stuff kind of disappears when you wake up the next morning you see everything a little fresher and you realize that you had tunnel vision and you were kind of had dug yourself into a hole and all you could see was no way out and the anxiety and all the rest of it 
and then you get a night's sleep, or maybe you get a couple of nights sleep over several days, and suddenly, uh, you know, new opportunities, new choices come into view that you weren't imagining before just because you had a reboot. It's the same way. So that's another part of sleep. It's, it's kind of a reboot on your decision making and your consciousness that lets you start fresh. And uh, so you don't get into these downward spirals where everything that you can see is because of all the anxiety that you've got. And the things you see give you more anxiety, which makes you see things that are you know, worse, which makes, gives you more anxiety. And pretty soon you're in a trap. Well, in a computer, we call that it gets in an endless loop. You see, it gets, uh, you know, and, and the thing will crash and give you an error message. Well, with us, we don't crash and get an error message. We go to bed and we get a good night's sleep, but we take a vacation. You know, we, we do something that distracts us. You know, maybe we go veggie out and listen to music or do something else to get our mind out of the, out of the non-productive loop that it's in. So that's another function of sleep. It, it serves as a reboot to our, to our consciousness and our awareness. Um, then, of course, there's the dreaming part. Now, in the dreaming part, you can do things. You can have experiences. When I say do things, I just mean have experience. You can have experiences in the, in the dreaming reality that offer you choices. So you're in a dream, and things happen, and you have to make choices just like you do when you're not dreaming. And the choices you make can help you evolve or de-evolve just like they do in this reality. So then you think of dreaming as just another reality frame in which you make choices that enable you to evolve or de-evolve. So what happens as you gain more quality in your consciousness is that those dreams become, for a while, they become a lot more productive. In other words, your dreaming gets more, um, I don't know, more uh, um, focused on the lessons that you have to learn. Maybe we'll say it that way. Uh, whereas before, maybe it was more haphazard. Your dreams may have been kind of all over the place, a little bit here, a little bit there, kind of a haphazard, like you were wandering around. But as you get more focus, your dreams tend to focus more too. And you will have experiences in your dreams that relate very much to, to choices that are on your path to uh, evolving or de-evolving, you know, choices you get to make. And it will pick weak areas. What areas are you weak in? Where is it that you would make bad choices? Well, better to make those bad choices in a dream than to make them here where you have lots of consequences. In the dream, you wake up and forget about it. Not a lot of consequences. Here, you make those bad choices and you have consequences that then you have to deal with and maybe deal with the rest of your life. In a dream, you get to make a bad choice and forget about it and you get to maybe do it again the next night. So it's, a, it's kind of a low consequence arena where you can have very dramatic choices that you make that you wouldn't want to have those, that same amount of drama here. And it's used for that. Now, if you're not serious about growing up, and you haven't grown up that much, and you're not really very serious about it, your dreams tend to be more uh, uneven. They jump from, from uh, you know, kind of idea to idea. You're still making choices, but that it's not so much a coherent learning program to help you learn things that you need to learn. Whereas once you get more focused on your growth and consciousness, your dreams kind of fall into line and become more focused on what it is you need to learn because you are 
aware that you're learning things and that you learn from them. And now you pay attention to the dream rather than blow it off. You say, oh, I had this dream and I had these, these choices. Uh, here I was in the dream and I had all these choices and boy, I, did I mess that up. You know, I really took the wrong one and it uh, degenerated quickly and then I fell off the cliff and the dream was over. So you're more aware of it. You can learn more for, from it. As you are able to learn more from it, then you get dreams that are more constructed for your learning. So they tend to change and become more productive for you after uh, you become more aware and more interested in, in, uh, in learning something. So that's the, and, but they're still used primarily for your learning in areas that are, that you wouldn't want to have the consequences for here. I mean, you have learning here and you have consequences, but your learning usually isn't that dramatic. Sometimes it is. Sometimes a big dramatic thing happens in your life and you have dramatic choices that will change the rest of your life. And it's a big learning moment here in this reality. But those are not everyday kinds of things. We're in, in your dream. Every dream can be like that. Your dream can be these big things. You know, you're in a, you're in a burning building and there's lots of people in the building. What do you do? Do you run out to get out or do you go try to tell the people that the house is on fire so that they might get out too? Or do you just save yourself by running out the door? It's your choice. What, what do you do? You say, and then they may do it when those people that are in the house or your family, and then maybe it's a bunch of strangers, and then they may vary on that dream in all sorts of ways and make you make that whole choice again in different circumstances. And uh, that's a, that would be a focused learning sequence, if you will. So you don't do those. You don't find yourself in a burning building in the physical reality, you know, four or five times with different people in it so you can make the choices. This reality just doesn't support that kind of thing. But your dream reality does. So that's how they change. They get more focused. Then eventually you grow up even more to where the learning now is very hard to get in little vignettes like you're in a burning house with people in it. Uh, now your learning is is a kind of a broader scope thing. And then you may get fewer dreams or your dreams may have a, a completely different kind of context to them. And you don't find yourselves in these little vignettes where you have to make snap decisions and how you're going to make it. And of course, in the dream reality, you don't think through your decisions. All your decisions are made from the being level. That's what's so powerful about the dream reality. You make them all from the being level. You don't you don't think about it and say, well, it's the right thing for me to do here. Should I run out and save myself or should I go up and try to help these people? And then you kind of weigh the pros and cons and, and do what you think you should do. Dreams aren't like that. In a dream, you, you're stuck in a situation. You make it out of the being level and what you do is exactly who and what you are. You express yourself at the being level in your dreams, which is another really neat thing about it. You don't intellectually come to, to your choices in a dream. So as you, get, uh, as you get even more evolved, it gets to where the little vignettes aren't all that. You've already done all that. You've been through that. You've learned those lessons, and the little vignettes aren't really enough. So then you get some broader, larger scope things, and you may get to the point where your dreams um, get fewer, and you don't dream quite as much. And uh, when you do, it's probably still vivid, but it's not as much of a learning tool as it was at a time when the small, when the short vignette throwing you into a story in the middle and having you make choices was very appropriate and a very good way to teach. Eventually, that's not quite so good a way to teach anymore, and uh, it changes. 
So you see it changes from the beginning when you're not paying attention to when you know a little more and now suddenly your dreams get more focused on helping you learn and then later it gets to a point where uh, the focus is entirely different than the normal dreaming that we tend to think of as far as little vignettes and being thrown into them and having to make decisions. It, it gets broader in scope and uh, uh, more, uh, what can I say, uh, kind of less specific. These, the, later on your dreams would be more difficult to tell somebody about them because they're not as specific and they're, they're not as uh, related to, to uh, physical reality. So that's, and, and another point about dreams is that whether you are aware of them or not, you still have them and you're still making decisions and you're still learning. You're still evolving or de-evolving from the choices you make in those dreams, whether you know about them or not. So it all, you know, this is a part of your existence is that you have this dream reality, which is another learning lab for you. And uh, whether you're aware of it in your intellect from this reality or not, doesn't really make any difference. You're still doing it. But once you become more aware and want to learn, then those dreams start to become, you know, they come to you more. You become more aware of them. You actually see the choice. And then not only did you make the choice in the dream, but you get to ponder the choice that you made in the dream and whether it was a good choice or not with your, you know, with your mind from this reality as well. So it just gives you another dimension in which you can process and learn from it. You can learn from both because the dreams now are in this reality as well as in a dream reality because you remember them. So that you know, so the more you grow, the the, the more you remember your dreams in general. The, the more dreams you have, the more vivid they get, and the more you remember them. Otherwise, they're just kind of splotchy things that don't mean anything. You blow them off, and you don't see them as a learning exercise. They're just this weird thing that happens to you sometimes at night, and uh, you don't learn so much from them as far as in this reality. But you're still learning from them in the in the other reality. You just don't know about it. Tom, may I ask, this is Pali, uh, what if um, I sometimes, not too often, uh, re realize that I'm thinking within the dream state and I to some degree also realize that I'm actually dreaming, but I don't have the mm, interest on changing the whole scene. Basically, I go along and sometimes, uh, so to speak, create some thought loops of uh, parts of the of the experience itself, but it's less intensive. And would you say that uh, that is not a dream anymore? It's more lucid dream, or okay. that's what's called a lucid dream. Once you once your intellect wakes up in the dream, that's a lucid dream. And at that point, there's some there's some advantage to that. Like you say, you don't have to go anywhere and change the whole thing. You can just kind of follow along with it. But what it does is it gives you another perspective. So now you have the dream going on, and you have that perspective from being inside the dream. But now you're also kind of floating above the dream, where you're watching the dream happen, like I said, from a spectator's viewpoint. So you're involved in it, doing it, plus you are observing it. And that gives you two different perspectives altogether on it, and you can see here you are, the intellect, watching you at the being level make the choices and do the things that you do, and it can give you appreciation for the difference between you at the intellect and you at the being level and kind of pulling those things together rather than having them separate pieces of you. You see, at the where you're trying to end up is that you at the being level and you at the intellectual level are all one. You don't have this intellectual level. You, know, you don't have the consciousness and the subconsciousness. You know, you have just 
consciousness that's everything. There is no subconscious. You are aware of everything going on in your system. And uh, the whole concept of having a subconscious is really uh, uh, an artifact of having a dysfunctional um, consciousness. There's things in your consciousness that you can't deal with, so they go underground and they become subconscious. But when you're completely aware, then you don't have a subconscious because you're aware of all your things. You're aware of your instincts. You're aware of, you know, your feelings. All that stuff doesn't bubble out and surprise you. It's all part of you. And uh, your intellect then is no longer attached to fear. So when you're not attached to fear, you still have a cognitive ability. It's not like, you know, I, I sometimes um, talk disparagingly about the intellect because the intellect is limited. But there's really nothing. The intellect is a good tool. You know, it's good. It's just that our intellect tends to generally be in the service of fear and ego and belief. Our intellect gets wrapped around those three axles, and that's what motivates it and, and uh, makes it function most of the time. So in that sense, the intellect gets a bad reputation because it's in the service of fear and ego and stuff mostly. Well, once you get rid of the fear and the belief and the ego, then your intellect's not wrapped around those things, and then there really is no distinction between your, in, your, you know, your intellectual level and your being level, and you, you're all just one aware consciousness of the whole thing. And now your intellect is a wonderful tool because it's not in the service of, of fear or whatever. It's in the service of love. It's in the service of you know caring and cooperation and all those kinds of things. And the intellect is a is a very wonderful tool. It just gets a bad rep, and uh, I sometimes talk to spirits, Oh, that's just your intellect. You know, like the intellect's something to you know to get rid of or something. It's not. You know, the intellect's a wonderful thing. Just for most of us. It's a tool of uh, it's it's a tool of our of our side that we're all you know we'd like to get rid of. It's a it's a tool of our ego, a tool of our fear. So that's the part of the intellect that is not useful. The intellect itself, once it gets rid of that fear, is a terrific tool. And in as much as we can use it for things that aren't attached to fear, it's a terrific tool now. You know, I mean, how else would you find out where you left your glasses or your car keys or where you parked your car, for that matter? You know, if you didn't have an intellect to kind of say, well, let's see, what direction did I come in from? And, uh, you know, where was I last that I might have taken my glasses off? That's the intellect. The intellect's very valuable. Um, but we need to get rid of that fear, ego, and belief, and then the intellect becomes a lot more valuable. And then it can direct our love. The intellect is our director. It's the thing that, that uh, kind of directs our intent. And we need that. But it's, you know, so that's... That's kind of where that goes. So yeah, the, we have, we tend to, in our dream, we work out of the being level. And uh, you know, they might say that we work out of the subconscious level, but that's not the same. The subconscious and the being level really aren't the same thing, but they do have some of the traits in common. And that it is what we truly are at a level deeper than what our, the image that our intellect would like to have of us. You know, it's, uh, but that's only because our intellect is, has a, has a disease called fear, you know, ego and belief. So that's that's how that works. So is it fair to say that uh, as soon as somebody starts thinking about himself in, for example, dreams, uh, he is actually in a lucid dream? Is it correct to yeah, say? You become, yeah, when you become aware, when you are now able to direct your attention and your intent, 
with your intellect in a dream, you're, that's what's called, that defines a lucid dream. So you're in a lucid dream when you have that. And like you say, you can take control of that dream and say, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, fight this lion or I don't want to be in this burning building, you know, with all these other people. I'd rather be at the seashore line at the beach, uh, you know, in the sun. And then, poof, there you are at the seashore, at the beach in the sun. You change things. You can take control of that dream and then you're basically like in an out-of-body situation. That's another, you know, you're in a very similar to the out-of-body situation where your intent controls what you do and where you go and what you see. So you can do that, or you can, as you say, just kind of hang out, become aware of that you're seeing yourself from two different perspectives and how those perspectives differ, and that the difference between them is mostly what it is you need to get rid of. You know, that needs to become a one whole perspective. So that's that can be very educational all by itself. No need to go out and roam around. You can learn a lot just hanging out and and being uh, being part of what's going on there. But that is a lucid dream. Tom, um, that answered a lot of the follow-up questions I had about dreams. So thank you for that part. Uh, and going back to my original question on the different kinds of things that can happen during sleep, I can think of a couple of other possibilities like somebody going to a reality where they can express their creativity to release emotion or just work on creativity. Or also there's a story in uh, one of Monroe's books where he talks about seeing a gathering of people getting a uh, like a sort of lecture or information from their guides. So I was just wondering what you thought about those other possibilities for things that can happen in sleep. Well, sure. A lot of, you know, a lot of our dreams aren't really dreams. They are you know, and we make these categories. You know, I, I was just about to say they're out-of-body experiences. You know, well, what Bob was talking about, you know, what's the difference between a dream and an out-of-body experience? Well, mostly in an out-of-body experience, you're you're lucid, you're in charge, you have an intent, and your intellect is is uh, kind of in charge of of what's going on, how you're processing the information. But yes, you can do all kinds of things like that in your dreams, and most people do. Most people do have what we categorize as an out-of-body you know, dream or a lucid dream. It's not a rare thing. We just wrap it all up and say, oh, that was a dream. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference between them is that a regular dream, a normal dream, disappears very quickly. It evaporates um, often within seconds, if not within minutes. You know, when you first wake up, it's perfectly clear, and two minutes later, it's starting to gray, and five minutes later, huh, what was that about? And, you know, an hour later, it's gone. Whereas what would fall into the category of out-of-body, and again, these categories are kind of arbitrary, but what would fall in the out-of-body category is one that you remember. You remember it the next day, you remember it the next week, you remember it five years later. It's that kind of a dream that is very clear to you and, and uh, just like having the experience here in the physical reality. You know, some of those physical reality things get gray and kind of fade out and you, you kind of lose detail on them too. But uh, the, the out-of-body dreams, if we want to call them that way, you know, dream hype and out-of-body experience tends to be the ones that stick. They don't evaporate quickly. And that's because you had the experience, you, your intellect, 
you, the part of you that is aware here in this physical reality, had the experience, not just the part of you that was aware in the dream reality. And that makes it stick just like it would if you were here and had the experience, if it's a very dramatic dream. The things you do here in this reality that aren't very dramatic, that are very mundane, you tend to lose those too. They evaporate, you know, into grayness as well. You know, somebody asked you to tell you exactly, you know, what you did at three o'clock in the afternoon one week ago. You may not be able to bring that up unless it was something really dramatic that happened at three o'clock in the afternoon. Otherwise, three o'clock in the afternoon kind of grays out. You know, just like a, you know, you know just like uh, the dream does. So it's, it's that sort of thing. So those things that come back with you and stay with you, I would call those out-of-body experiences, even though you went to sleep and you had it while you were asleep and it disappeared when you awoke. So we, we put that in the dream category, but it's a little different set of experiences because once your intellect's involved, then it's it's yours to, you know, to come back with, just like you did it here. So sure, there's all those other kinds of experiences. And when you're in this out-of-body dream, you uh, can experience your intellects involved, so you can experience all sorts of things, make, make different choices. Now they're not just choices from the, from the uh, being level, they're choices from your intellectual level. And you can practice things, you can do things, you can learn, like say, creativity, you can interact with other people in meaningful ways. And now you are a cognitive um, you know, agent in a different reality frame. It's much like you're awake and a cognitive agent in this reality frame while you're while you're awake, and you are you are the same kind of cognitive entity in a different reality frame. Except now you have a larger assortment of choices, whereas here you have to abide by the rule set. You can only do the things here that are you know that are probable. You can't just really do kind of amazing wild things there. You can create in ways that you can't do here. So it gives you a, another dimension in which you can express yourself once you become lucid, whether you call it an out-of-body or a dream or a lucid dream. Uh, once you're in that state where your intellect is, is in charge, um, yes, there's a lot of things you can do. And those things can be very insightful. You can learn a lot and you can grow a lot from them. It's just another place to experience. You know, it's another set of experiences that you can have. And yeah, you know, I, I lumped the lucid dreaming and the out of body in the same in the same bin there. And of course, many people who have those experiences just call them dreaming. So uh, how you piece part those out is is not entirely clear. And the only the only clear differentiation I can make is the ones that are lucid, be it out of body or be it uh, lucid dream, are the ones that you bring back in full memory that you retain. The ones that evaporate in minutes are the ones that I just call dreams. And the difference is whether or not your own intellect was in charge or not. 